Chapter Thirty Seven of the Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Thirty Seven. Victoria felt as if all her blood were beating in her brain. She could not think, and dimly she was glad that Sadie did not speak again. She could not have borne more of those hatefully specious arguments. For a moment she stood still, pressing her hands over her eyes and against her temples. Then, without turning, she walked almost blindly to a window that opened upon Sadie's garden. The little court was a silver cube of moonlight, so bright that everything white looked alive with a strange spiritual intelligence. The scent of the orange blossoms was lusciously sweet. She shrank back, remembering the orange court at the Ciades house in Ouargla. It was there that Zorro had prophesied, Never wilt thou come this way again. I'm tired after all, the girl said dully, turning to Sadie, but leaning against the window frame. I didn't realize it before. The perfume won't let me think. You look dreadfully white, exclaimed Sadie. Are you going to faint? Lie down here on the divan. I'll send for something. No, no, don't send and I won't faint, but I want to think. Can I go out into the air, not where the orange blossoms are? I'll take you on to the roof, Sadie said. It's my favorite place, looking over the desert. She put her arm around Victoria, leading her to the stairway, and so to the roof. Are you better? she asked miserably. What can I do for you? Let's not speak for a little while, please. I can think now soon i shall be well don't be anxious about me darling very gently she slipped away from sadie's arm that clasped her waist and the softness of the young voice which had been sharp with pain touched the elder woman she knew that the girl was thinking more of her sadie than of herself victoria leaned on the white parapet and looked down over the desert where the sand rippled in silvery lines and waves like water in moonlight. The golden silence, she thought. It was silver now, not golden, but she knew that this was the place of her dream. On the white roof like this, she had seen Sadie stand with eyes shaded from the sun in the west, waiting for her, calling for her, or so she had believed. Poor Sadie, poor beautiful Sadie, changed in soul though so little changed in face could it be that she had never called in spirit to her sister victoria bowed her head and tears fell from her eyes upon her cold bare arms crossed on the white wall sadie did not want her sadie was sorry that she had come her coming had only made things worse i wish the girl was on the point of saying to herself i wish i'd never been born but before the words shaped themselves fully in her mind, terrible words, because she had felt the beauty and sacred meaning of life, the desert spoke to her. Sadie does want you, 
the spirit of the wind and the glimmering sands seemed to say if she had not wanted you do you think you would have been shown this picture with your sister in it the picture which brought you half across the world she called once long ago and you heard the call you were allowed to hear it are you so weak as to believe just because you're hurt and suffering that such messages between hearts mean nothing sadie may not know that she wants you but she does and needs you more than ever before this is your hour of temptation you thought everything was going to be wonderfully easy almost too easy and instead it is difficult that's all but be brave for sadie and yourself now and in days to come for you are here only just in time the pure strong wind blowing over the dunes was a tonic to victoria's soul and she breathed it eagerly catching at the robe of faith she held the spirit fast and it stayed with her suddenly she felt at peace sure as a child that she would be taught what to do next there was her star floating in the blue lake of the sky like a water lily where millions of lesser lilies blossomed dear star she whispered thank you for coming i needed you just then are you better asked sadie in a choked voice victoria turned away from sky and desert to the drooping figure of the woman standing in a pool of shadow dark as fear and treachery yes dearest one i am well again and i won't have to worry you any more the girl gently wound two protecting arms around her sister what have you decided to do victoria could feel sadie's heart beating against her own i've decided to pray about deciding and then to decide whatever's best for you i will do i promise and for yourself don't forget that i'm thinking of you don't believe it's all cowardice i don't believe anything but good of my sadie i envy you because you think you've got someone to pray to i've nothing i'm alone in the dark victoria made her look up at the moon which flooded the night with a sea of radiance there is no dark she said we're together in the light how hopeful you are sadie murmured i've left hope so far behind i've almost forgotten what it's like maybe it's always been hovering just over your shoulder only you forgot to turn and see it can't be gone because i feel sure that truth and knowledge and hope are all one i wonder if you'll still feel so when you've married a man of another race as i have victoria did not answer she had to conquer the little cold thrill of superstitious fear which crept through her veins as sadie's words reminded her of mabarka's sand divining she had to find courage again from her star before she could speak forgive me babe said sadie stricken by the look in the lifted eyes i wish i needn't remind you of anything horrid to-night your first night with me after all these years but we have so little time what else can i do i shall know by to-morrow what we are to do victoria said cheerfully because i shall take counsel of the night you're a very odd girl the woman reflected aloud 
when you were a tiny thing you used to have the weirdest thoughts and do the quaintest things i was sure you'd grow up to be absolutely different from any other human being and so you have i think only an extraordinary sort of girl could ever have made her way without help from potterston indiana to oed tolga in north africa i had help every minute sadie did you think of me sometimes when you were standing here on this roof yes of course i've thought of you often only not so often lately as at first because for the long time now i've been numb i haven't thought much or cared much about anything or or anyone else except 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 myself i'm afraid sadie's face was turned away from victoria's she looked toward oed tolga the city whither the carrier pigeon had flown i wondered she went on hastily what had become of you and if you were happy and whether by this time you'd nearly forgotten me you were such a baby child when i left you i won't believe you really wondered if i could forget you and thoughts of you have made my whole life i was just living for the time when i could earn enough money to search for you and preparing for it of course so as to be ready when it came sadie still looked toward oed tolga where the white domes shimmered far away in the moonlight like a mirage was love a mirage too the love that called for her over there the love whose voice made the strings of her heart vibrate though she had thought them broken and silent forever victoria's arms round her felt strong and warm yet they were a barrier she was afraid of the barrier and afraid of the girl's passionate loyalty she did not deserve it she knew and she would be more at ease she could not say happier because there was no such word as happiness for her without it somehow she could not bear to talk of victoria's struggle to come to her rescue the thought of all the girl had done made her feel unable to live up to it or to be grateful she did not want to be called upon to live up to any standard she wanted if she wanted anything simply to go on blindly as fate led but she felt that near her faith hovered like a carrier pigeon and some terrible force within herself which frightened her seemed ready to push away or destroy anything that might come between her and that fate she knew that she ought to question victoria about the past years of their separation one side of her nature was eager to hear the story but the other side which had gained strength lately forced her to dwell upon less intimate things i suppose mrs ray managed to keep most of poor father's money she said mrs ray died when i was fourteen and after that mr potter lost everything in speculation the girl answered everything of yours too yes but it didn't matter except for the delay my dancing your dancing really dearest because if it hadn't been for you i shouldn't have put my heart into it so earned me all i needed i said you were extraordinary but how queer it seems to hear those names again mrs ray mr potter 
They're like names in a dream. How wretched I used to think myself with Mrs. Ray in Paris when she was so jealous and cross. But a thousand times since I've wished myself back in those days. I was happy, really. I was free. Life was all before me. Dearest, but surely you weren't miserable from the very first with... with Cassim. No, I suppose I wasn't. I was in love with him. It seemed very interesting to be the wife of such a man. Even when I found that he meant to make me lead the life of an Arab woman, shut up and veiled, I liked him too well to mind much. He put it in such a romantic way, telling me how he worshipped me, how mad with jealousy he was even to think of other men seeing my face and falling in love with it. He thought everyone must fall in love, all girls like men to be jealous, till they find out how sordid jealousy can be. And I was so young, a child, I felt as if I were living in a wonderful eastern poem. Cassim used to give me the most gorgeous presents, and our house in Algiers was beautiful. My garden was a dream, and how he made love to me in it. Besides, I was allowed to go out veiled. It was rather fun being veiled in those days, I thought so. It made me feel mysterious, as if life were a masquerade ball, and the Arab women, Cassim let me know, a very few wives and sisters of his friends, envied me immensely. I loved that. I was so silly, and they flattered me, asking about my life in Europe. I was like a fairy princess among them until, one day, a woman told me a thing about Cassim. She told me because she was spiteful and wanted to make me miserable, of course, for I found out afterwards she'd been expressly forbidden to speak on account of my prejudices. They'd all been forbidden. I wouldn't believe at first, but it was true. The others couldn't deny it, and to prove what she said, the woman took me to see the boy, who was with his grandmother, an aunt of Maeddine's, dead now. The boy? Oh, I forgot. I haven't explained. The thing she told was that Cassim had a wife living when he married me. Sadie, how horrible, how horrible. Yes, it was horrible. It broke my heart. Sadie was tingling with excitement now. Her stiff, miserable restraint was gone in the feverish satisfaction of speaking out those things which for years had corroded her mind, like verdigris. She had never been able to talk to anyone in this way, and her only relief had been in putting her thoughts on paper. Some of the books in her locked cupboard she had given to a friend, the writer of today's letter because she had seen him only for a few minutes at a time, and had been able to say very little on the occasion when they had spoken a few words to each other. She had wanted him to know what a martyrdom her life had been. Involuntarily she talked to her sister now, as she would have talked to him, and his face rose clearly before her eyes, more clearly almost than Victoria's, which her own shadow darkened, and screened from the light of the moon as they stood together, clasped in one another's arms. Cassim thought it all right, of course, she went on. 
A Muslim may have four wives at a time if he likes, though men of his rank don't, as a rule, take more than one, because they must marry women of high birth, who hate rivals in their own house. But he was too clever to give me a hint of his real opinions in Paris. He knew I wouldn't have looked at him again if he had, even if he hadn't told me about the wife herself. She had had this boy and gone out of her mind afterwards, so she wasn't living with Cassim. That was the excuse he made when I taxed him with deceiving me. Her father and mother had taken her back. I don't know surely whether she is living or dead, but I believe she's dead and her body buried beside the grave supposed to be Cassim's. Anyhow, the boy's living and he's the one thing on earth Cassim loves better than himself. When did you find out about, about all this? Victoria asked almost whispering. Eight months after we were married, I heard about his wife. I think Cassim was true to me in his way till that time, but we had an awful scene. I told him I'd never live with him again as his wife, and I never have. After that day, everything was different. No more happiness, not even an Arab woman's idea of happiness. Cassim began to hate me but with the kind of hate that holds and won't let go. He wouldn't listen when I begged him to set me free. Instead, he wouldn't let me go out at all, or see anyone, or receive or send letters. He punished me by flirting outrageously with a pretty woman, the wife of a French officer. He took pains that I should hear everything through my servants, but his cruelty was visited on his own head, for soon there came a dreadful scandal. The woman died suddenly of coral poisoning, after a quarrel with her husband on Cassim's account, and it was thought she'd taken too much of the drug on purpose. The day after his wife's death, the officer shot himself. I think he was a colonel, and everyone knew that Cassim was mixed up in the affair. He had to leave the army, and it seemed, he thought so himself, that his career was ruined. He sold his place in Algiers and took me to a farmhouse in the country where we lived for a while, and he was so lonely and miserable he would have been glad to make up. But how could I forgive him? He deceived me too horribly. And besides, in my own eyes I wasn't his wife. Surely our marriage wouldn't be considered legal in any country outside Islam, would it? Even you, a child like you, must see that. I suppose so, Victoria answered sadly. But, there's no but. I thought so then. I think so a hundred times more now. My life's been a martyrdom. No one could blame me if... But I was telling you about what happened after Algiers. There was a kind of armed truce between us in the country though we lived only like two acquaintances under the same roof. For months he had nobody else to talk to, so he used to talk with me, quite freely sometimes, about a plan some powerful Arabs, friends of his, Maedine and his father among others, were making for him. It sounded like a fairy story, and I used to think he must be going mad. But he wasn't. It was all true about the plot that was being worked. 
He knew I couldn't betray him, so it was relief to his mind, in his nervous excitement, to confide in me. Was it a plot against the French? Indirectly. That was one reason it appealed to Cassim. He'd been proud of his position in the army, and being turned out, or forced to go, much the same thing, made him hate France and everything French. He had given his life for revenge, I'm sure. Probably that's why his friends were so anxious to put him in a place of power, for they were men whose watchword was Islam for Islam. Their hope was, and is, to turn France out of North Africa. You wouldn't believe how many there are who hope and band themselves together for that. These friends of Cassim's persuaded and bribed a wretched cripple, who was next of kin to the last marabout and ought to have inherited, to let Cassim take his place. Secretly, of course, it was a very elaborate plot. It had to be. Three or four rich, important men were in it, and it would have meant ruin if they had been found out. Cassim would really have come next in succession if it hadn't been for the hunchback, who lived in Morocco, just over the border. If he had any conscience, I suppose that thought soothed it. He told me that the real heir, the cripple, had epileptic fits and couldn't live long, anyhow. The way they worked their plan out was by Cassim starting for a pilgrimage to Mecca. I had to go away with him, because he was afraid to leave me. I knew too much, and it was simpler to take me than to put me out of the way. Sadie, he would never have murdered you, Victoria whispered. He would if necessary, I'm sure of it. But it was safer not. Besides, I'd often told him I wanted to die, so that was an incentive to keep me alive. I didn't go to Mecca. I left the farmhouse with Cassim, and he took me to South Oran, where he is now. I had to stay in the care of a marabouta, a terrible old woman, a bigot and a tyrant, a cousin of Cassim's on his mother's side, and a sister of the man who invented the whole plot. The idea was that Cassim should seem to be drowned in the Bosphorus while staying at Constantinople with friends after his pilgrimage to Mecca. But luckily for him, there was a big fire in the hotel where he went to stop for the first night. So he just disappeared, and a lot of trouble was saved. He told me about the adventure when he came to Oran. The next move was to Morocco, and from Morocco he traveled here, in place of the cripple, when the last marabout died, and the heir was called to his inheritance. That was nearly eight years ago. And he's never been found out? No, and he never will be. He's far too clever. Outwardly, he's hand in glove with the French. High officials and officers come here to consult with him, because he's known to have immense influence all over the South and in the West, even in Morocco. He's masked like a Tuareg, and a French believe it's because of a vow he made in Mecca. No one but his most intimate friends or his own people have ever seen the face of Sidi Mohammed since he inherited the marabout ship and came to Oued Tolga. He must hate wearing his mask, for he's as handsome as he ever was, 
and just as vain but it's worth the sacrifice not only is he a great man with everything or nearly everything he wants in the world but he looks forward to a glorious revenge against the french whose interests he pretends to serve how can he revenge himself what power has he to do that the girl asked she had a strange impression that sadie had forgotten her that all this talk of the past and of the marabout was for someone else of whom her sister was thinking he has tremendous power sadie answered almost angrily as if she resented the doubt all islam is at his back the french humour him and let him do whatever he likes no matter how eccentric his ways may be because he's got them to believe he is trying to help the government in the wildest part of algeria the province of iran and with the touaregs in the farthest south and that he promotes french interests in morocco really he's at the head of every religious secret society in north africa banded together to turn christians out of Mussulman countries the french have no idea how many such secret societies exist and how rich and powerful they are their dear friend the good wise polite marabout assures them that rumours of that sort are nonsense but some day when everything's ready when morocco and iran and algeria and tunisia will obey the signal all together then they will have a surprise and cassim ben halim will be revenged it sounds like the weaving of a brain in a dream victoria said it will be a nightmare dream no matter how it ends maybe a nightmare of blood and war and massacre haven't you ever heard or read how the Mussulman people expect a savior the mulsah as they call him the man of the hour who will preach a holy war and lead it himself to victory yes i've read that well cassim hopes to be the mulsah and deliver islam by the sword i suppose you wonder how i know such secrets or whether i do really know them at all but i do some things cassim told me himself because he was bursting with vanity and simply had to speak other things i've seen in writing he would kill me if he found out and still other things i've guessed why the boys here in the zawaya are being brought up for the great work as they call it not all of them but the most important ones among the older boys they have separate classes something secret and mysterious is taught them they are boys from morocco and iran and sons of the Tuareg chiefs all those who most hate christians no other zoeya is like this the place seethes with hidden treachery and sedition now you can see where si maidine's power over cassim comes in the aga his father is one of the few who help make cassim what he is but he's a cautious old man the kind who wants to run with the hare and hunt with the hounds si maidine's cautious too cassim has said he approves the doctrines of the secret societies but he's so ambitious that without a very strong incentive to turn against them in act he'd be true to the french 
Well, now he has the incentive. You. I don't understand, said Victoria. Yet even as she spoke, she began to understand. He'll offer to give himself and to influence the Aga and the Aga's people, the Oled Serene, if Cassim will grant his wish. And it's no use saying that Cassim can't force you to marry any man. You told me yourself a little while ago that if you saw harm coming to me... Oh, don't. Don't speak of that again, Sadie, the girl cried sharply. I've told you, yes, that I'd do anything, anything on earth to save you pain or more sorrow. But let's hope. Let's pray. There is no hope. I've forgotten how to pray, Sadie answered. And God has forgotten me. End of chapter 37